Welcome to the Idea Land podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. Hi, everybody. Today I'm talking to Martin Adler, who's one of my best friends and a serial entrepreneur who creates companies and services that really cultivate mental and physical health. He's currently the CEO of Brooklyn Boulders, which is a leading national rock climbing gym with locations all over the country. Today, Martin stops by and drops some real knowledge bombs about climbing, learning, and physical health. Cool. Great. Hey, Martin Adler, welcome to Idealand Podcast. Thanks for doing this, man. It was on short notice. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been, I've been enjoying the podcast. I'm excited to be on it. Uh, you just got off of the HXD conference video where you gave an awesome presentation. Just recap that because that was pretty cool. I so uh, it was about taking behavior change principles from healthcare, where you and I spent a lot of time, healthcare experience design, and applying those to a completely different industry, which is climbing or indoor rock climbing. Yeah, and so. now we created some novel technology to allow people to experience flow, whether they're beginners or experts, where a lot of people when they're first exposed, just get shut down, they get tired really fast and don't enjoy the experience. And so they don't want to come back. And so this focus was how do we titrate and control the experience using technology so that people are successful and they spend as much time in the flow state as possible because fundamentally the product is flow and that requires a little bit of onboarding and some physical adaptation. And I want people to experience that on the, the first pass, the first experience climbing. And so we need to use technology to personalize to ensure that, that people experience flow rather than promise them like the promise of a runner's high. If you stick at it for a few weeks and adapt your body, you'll feel the feeling that everyone's talking where like people say, man, I trust me. It feels great. Once you get into it and you're just thinking like my sides hurt, my legs hurt. I'm out of breath. I it feel sucks. like I'm dying. It sucks it for just a long time. Sucks. And then it gets awesome. But that's not like, you know, like, the belief that it's going to be awesome after months of it sucking is usually not enough to keep people adhering. Yeah. When I see running, I don't see it as something like a universal truth about the human existence that if you move in this way, everyone just needs to reach this plateau. I think what it is, is a massive campaign to weed people out from the, the people with the four genes in the world that like, like running, yeah. you'll yeah. find those people. So totally. And you tried this on me too once. You tried it with another sport, which I'm honest, man, I, I tried this and I still can't really get into the whole surfing thing. Like I know you're a crazy good surfer and you're really passionate about it. I remember you tried to take me out. I'm like, what is it? Why are people waking up at 4.30 or 5 in, the, 5 in the morning to go surfing? And then we're out there 5 in the morning in the freezing Pacific Ocean. You're like, you're going to understand this. The, mo ocean, the ocean's moving you. It's like you feel like you're one with nature and all this stuff. And I was like, I don't know. This feels like I'm being waterboarded basically yeah. constantly. Like why and both are happening. It's like I gave you every uh, point break saying I could. And it, yeah. it, it I, you know, I, I would consider myself now, I'm not an expert surfer, but I'm very passionate about it. I am an expert at learning how not to teach people to surf. <laughs> my, my beloved wife ended up on the rocks in, in Nicaragua based on one of my other attempts, <laughs> which was horrifying for both of us. I ended up having to sort of tow her and her board off of the rocks. Um, there's so much to be learned about how to expose people to activities from, from my failures in teaching people to surf. And yeah. Well, here's, so the thing with climbing and I recreationally do it 
not in a way that's consistent. It just seems like there's such a high barrier to entry to climbing, even though it seems like a, it, sh- it should be an, a sport that's accessible to everybody. And I don't know if that's skill level or I don't know if it's like you were talking about the anxiety and stuff uh, of just being good at it. Cause like a climbing wall is a pretty intimidating thing to most people. And everyone just feels like yeah. I'm, there's no way I'm in shape to do that. Right. Is that yeah. true? I think it's two things. I think that when you, the sport started outside and then the people who were already very good at the sport did a kind of a side hustle of building indoor gyms. And so I think that it wasn't, it wasn't conceived initially as to how to on-ramp new people to it. It was conceived of how do I replicate the thing I do outside that I've trained for years for. Yeah. And I think like surfing, there's been an accepted amount of early failure, like that does the weeding process in a sense, but that, that as a business model is not a very good business model. And if you are like me and you believe that, I know you believe this, like population health is about getting people to do behaviors that facilitate their health. And to me, it's like the fitness and the relationships, the social support networks. And so if my bar, if my barrier to entry is you're already fit and already have strong social support networks to not to be a jerk, like I don't care about those people. They're fine. They don't need our help. They would go do something else like train for a triathlon. I'm not really that interested in the the public good of serving those people, the public good of saying, Hey, you're deconditioned. And maybe you feel a little bit lonely or, or the way you interact with your friends is like going out to the bar. Let's offer you an opportunity. And this is what I experienced starting a climbing club in college. Like it changes your behavior inherently because you don't want to go out drinking the night before because like you're climbing tomorrow and you're not going to feel good if you're hungover. And yeah. so now you have a group of people who are getting their social and their physical like validation or enjoyment in a way that's very healthy and pro-social and is, doesn't beat up their joints or cause them in, injury at high rate. It's a very low rate of injury sport, actually, very safe indoor sport. Um, so what I, what I would say is because it wasn't started in the DNA to onboard new people, it was started about training people who are already into it. It just needs to kind of be flipped on its head. It'd be like if you taught people how to ride a bike on a high-end road bike yeah, versus exactly. like with training wheels. And so no adult necessarily wants to learn a bike with training wheels, but also if I put you on uh, a single speed race bike with no brakes, like a track bike, you're going to hate it. And so that's probably like a good analog to the state of the industry. Really? So what are you guys doing at Brooklyn Boulders and why is, why are you even talking about things like flow and motivation? So what's the secret sauce? Like how do you onboard people correctly and make them feel like this is a sport they want to continue? Well, I kind of like, back it up a little bit on the mission. I'll answer that question. But so, um, I, I broke my back rock climbing. I remember that uh, outside. So don't want to hurt my brand here outside, not inside. Inside's very safe. You can do a lot of dumb things outside if, when you're in college, like I was. So I got really hurt. I got exposed to West Virginia's medical system where I went in, I got hiked out of the woods on a stretcher. They told me I sprained my neck gave me a bus ticket and a two Vicodin. And then finally, because think you know, the privilege of sort of, I don't know, having parents that have medical you know, credentials in the family ended up at Mass General Man's Greatest Hospital where they properly diagnosed me with a, a, with a fracture of a vertebrae. 
I've never and, heard that. MGH, yeah, so, Men's Greatest Hospital. I've never heard that. Oh, man. Well, that's just because I work for partners. That's the, the that's what people really call it internally. Man's Greatest Hospital. And there's a lot to back that up, at least in the, you know, in the evolution of his, uh, surgery and everything. But um, I'm talking to this doctor saying, hey, yeah, my back still hurts. I've been doing overhead presses and swimming and doing pull-ups, and it's still bugging me. He looks at my radiographs, whatever they were, x-rays, and he's like, don't move. I'm horrified that you've been doing these things. And within 10 minutes, I was in like a steel back brace, like the Tin Man for the next six weeks. So my first experience was shit medical care at at a university hospital in West Virginia. So better than a lot of places, it's a university teaching hospital. And maybe just my circumstances, but didn't get good care there. And so I thought, okay, I want to go into healthcare. I want to improve the experience of getting care. Started working for partners, found some IP, um, and you know people like Rick Lee, uh, co-founded Healthrageous, Doug McClure. I uh, got to have the opportunity to be a co-founder of that company, working on activity, diabetes, hypertension. That was all like in-home connected device kind of stuff. Here, and here's where it all comes around. So we're building this coach, not as high-end as the coach you're developing, but it's a rules-based coach. People ask questions, then they send in sometimes free text responses. A pattern that kept emerging is people would say things like, yeah, I used to be active, but then my hip started hurting or my knee, and now I put on some weight. And like, I'm just sort of off, off of my path in that respect. Fast forward to getting the opportunity to work with you at Reflection yeah. on post-orthopedic recovery, where people have had that hip or that knee worked on. And one pattern I think that was came over and over and over again is like, um, people wear out their joints either because they're inactive or active in ways that are tough on the body. And then the cycle like continues. And so what I found so interesting about rock climbing and surfing are there are activities you can do for a long time. There's 80 year olds doing both of those things and they don't rip your body apart. And I like running, I'm not anti-running, but there's activities that just rip up your body like tennis that they're just not likely to be sustainable. So that, that lens got me really interested in what are things at scale in urban environments that meaningfully benefit people in terms of like health and social support, connectivity, that kind of thing. And climbing actually is one of those. So now say that, yeah, it's true. Cause like these ballistic movements, lots of cutting and sudden shifts in momentum, like that puts yeah. a lot of strain, right? Like, you know, it's like a baseball pitcher's arm. Oh, right? totally. And I, and it wasn't an academic idea because after I broke my back, I would feel all that stuff. Like I, I would feel what it would feel like a day after I'd go play tennis or something felt bad. And so then my, my list of activities I could do got pretty whittled down to low impact where climbing and surfing fit that bill. So it was like a little vision into the future being 25 and in pain all the time. It was like, oh man, I'm, I'm experiencing this early, but like this happens to everybody. And then you and I would see the data of who's coming in for total knees and total hips. A lot of runners. I mean, we knew, you know, how many people did we deal with who were runners getting total hips at the, the youngest ones getting totals were, were runners. So then, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to say, I don't know the data on this, but you know, my mom's a rheumatologist. She says this all the time. She's very wary of, of marathons in general. She's very wary of ultra marathons. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, oh, you're going to just, you know, destroy the cartilage in your, I, mean, I don't know what the data is on that. Maybe there's certain phenotypes of people who do and don't, but I get it. Like there's an increased risk of wear and tear because you're putting a lot of wear and tear on the actual joint, 
right? In a, in a yeah, totally. And I believe there's ways, the problem on this stuff is like, I'm sure there's ways to do these things safely. They're about, you know, conditioning the full body and being strong and supple and, you know, joint maintenance and everything. But the other thing is like, who's doing that? That's like a full-time job. So I'm more familiar with sitting all day, being tight, and then going for a run, barely stretched. Like, I think the most, even though you could make the argument, and I'm again, not anti-running, like all of these things can be done safely, but similarly, who actually is doing that level of maintenance to do it safely? It's so much less, right? The, the amount of people that are actually following through with all the things they should be doing, like training all your stabilizers and making sure that your, your pelvic angle is like good and you don't have any imbalances, like that's just a very small amount of people training the arches of their feet, all that. That's, pro- that's maybe hours a day, realistically. I'm also a little bit wary. Yeah, I agree. It's like this weird thing we do, which we sit around in the front of the computer all day and then we do like a really heavy workout or we're like doing resistance training in a way that's like very destructive because heavy weightlifting, which is like what I like to do is like destructive. It's really hard to do. It's why all those guys are beat up in their forties and fifties and they could barely move. Like the heavy, heavy lifters are all, they're done. I mean, they're, you know, you're doing a bench, you're putting up 300 pounds and you're locking your, your elbows out. It's going to be, that's a lot of weight. Right. So yeah, I, I agree. It's weird. Um, but you, Sanjay Gupta was talking about this at the beginning. I don't know if you saw the keynote at the beginning of the conference, he was saying that, you know, there was a, a culture in Bolivia that was like having very low things of coronary disease. And he's like, you know what they do is they don't actually jog or run that much, but they're standing and walking around most of the days. Like they don't yeah. sit. So there's like yeah. this baseline level of activity that's just higher, but not super intense could be very protective. Oh yeah, totally. And, and, and the, the people I know that I respect a lot who, who do things like Ironman, the, uh, this guy was telling me his training protocol. I thought it was amazingly interesting really really long at a really really low heart rate low impact he'll be like i'll walk 15 miles in a day really 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 intense short so it's zone training like he'll be zone one and zone five or maybe it's zone two and zone five but he's like i don't give a shit about like three and four where everybody is when they're training usually is like you know i'm not killing myself but i'm panting like maybe your heart rate's like 140 he's like i don't got time for that like I do the low, low and slow, really low and slow, and then ballistic full on sprints, like hardcore, really, really short duration. And he's like, then it's like pandiculating. You get, you get everything in between. If you do the extremes at both ends, like that's pretty interesting. There's a whole bunch of people thinking about that kind of stuff. Like even, even if we want to go on the running example, breathing only through your nose when you run as a way to keep your heart rate in, in a lower zone. And then it makes your cardiovascular system stronger. Whereas like a lot of people are running and they're putting themselves more in that anaerobic or like that sub threshold space. And then it's like, you're actually, and I've definitely experienced this myself. Like you're not really that fit cardiovascularly. You've almost been running faster. I'm going to screw up the example, but you kind of know what I'm saying. Like, it's like your heart didn't get progressively stronger you just just jacked up the load and just suffered through it. But it wasn't like a stimulus that was making your cardiovascular system like more efficient. It was making like your lactate, you know, your like, like your anaerobic system a lot more efficient, which so, doesn't, isn't, I don't think as good for longevity. I want to get your thoughts on something that I've noticed. 
And I don't know the reason for it. I don't know if it's real. Maybe it's just something I'm imagining, but I will get your thoughts on it anyway. So like the, the thing with, with climbing, for sure, there's no doubt about the fact that there is an existential fear associated with it in a way that like isn't associated with many other sports or activities, right? Yeah. Like you could fall, you could die. And like, even if you're, you, you could have the world's most advanced harness, yet still that fear is so primal, those genes get expressed yeah, and those thought totally. patterns are, are there, right? And so that takes time to get over. Um, and it, it can, right? That you can get over it, and and where you're not focused on falling because you're you're confident in the system that's keeping you across the wall and the people you're climbing with. So you're more focused on how do we get to the top. Um, how do you get people over that hump? Because that could be a significant barrier for a lot of people. And the second thing is, okay, this is weird, but everyone's trying to get to their optimum healthy weight. That means for a lot of people losing specifically fat. Yeah. I've noticed with climbing, I tend to shed fat faster than anything else I've ever done. And I don't know why that is. I think I do, but I don't have evidence yet. And somebody will do this study and then it'll help everyone be thinner and hopefully help me make some money. So uh, here's why I think. I want to hear it. I think the reverse adaptation, strength to weight ratio in climbing is, is everything but it's not in things like powerlifting. So let's say like another, another sort of nascent interest of mine, like I wanted to learn how to squat and get strong. The bar does not give a shit how much I weigh. It only wants me to lift it. And so my body's perspective is I'll put on as much weight as I got to put on to get this bar up because that's also kind of scary when you're in a low squat with a lot of weight on your back and you're like, Oh shit, what's going to happen here. So, so that's telling the body, Put on weight because all I give a shit about is strength, absolute strength, not strength to weight ratio. Then in climbing, the body's always looking for efficiencies to complete the task, to accomplish the task. So what are you telling the body? You're saying no unnecessary weight. I want the best strength to weight ratio for this task. So I think the signaling to the body is lean out because leaning out will make this easier for me. And, it, and I, I think it's working the same pathways. I don't want to pretend to be the doctor here, but working the same pathways as lifting heavy weight off the ground makes you weigh more because your body's like, I need to get stronger. I'm willing to put on weight to do it because this weight's got to move. I think things that are off the ground, the signaling to the body is every pound is more effort I have to put out and the body adapts to reduce the effort to accomplish the task. So I think it's a new stimulus that most people have never applied to the body. And then I think the reason they get results so fast is because it's a new stimulus. So like this theory of people, everyone I know who starts climbing leans out fast. And that stimulus is new, but it's definitely not about calories either. Like that, that bullshit train is like, that's, that is not a factor here. Well, fat loss is hormonally mediated, right? It could be like, I know, right, right. And what, what's mediating, I mean, you're, you're more of an expert here, but like, what are the hormones doing? They're helping you accomplish the tasks that you need to survive and thrive in your environment. So you've now changed your environment and the signaling is now different, which is like, all right, we'll kick up whatever the thing is that makes me stronger, but way less. And that may have been an evolved adaptation because it's, it's a new stimulus to most people in our current age, but it's not a new stimulus to people living as hunter and gatherers you know, roaming yeah. around the local neighborhood, which includes climbing, climbing, climbing and hiking. To get coconuts. I mean, I love being in the Southwest, Mesa Verde. Like, you know, they've got, they've got people, Canyon de Shea, like they were Native American people living up in the rocks with very significant climbs just to get up to their houses. 
yeah. and they were doing it at a young age. So you just wonder like, like the ability to adapt the physique to enable climbing is definitely, or people, I forget the area, but where they're climbing cliff faces to get honey, like, like there's enough examples of this where you think like, okay, that's in like the repertoire of abilities that are that evolution or like our physiology is going to enable. So it's like, it might be seasonal. Like in this season, I need to lean out and climb to acquire some resource or for protection. Your hypothesis is so interesting. I'm just thinking, I don't know of any studies that have been done, but would you be open to the idea uh, or the possibility of engaging in a study like that? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely. I think it would be really fun. And, and I, the other thing is like, I'm pretty bullish that the data would come out in a way that would support the hypothesis because, you know, like, like you have to make studies so that you can't insert your bias to them. But it is kind of one of those observed behavior things that happens where you think like, all right, well, I put my money on the outcome of this trial yeah. Yeah. coming yeah. out in, in our favor. You'd have to, we like, we'd have to uh, have a good comparison group, right? So it's something like, obviously, like a control where no one's, you know, people aren't doing anything. So if, I, if I wanted to game it, I'd say swimming, swimming versus climbing. Swimming's swimming, well, it's not bad. It burns a lot of calories, but why, why doesn't it lean people out as much? And my, my hypothesis is because. I think it does. It, it does, but it, that's, I think, a different mechanism because it's you're way less in the water you're more buoyant that's so true. the efficiency but just follow me I, I see this from underwater hockey how people's physiques adapt like you yes becoming leaner lowers the resistance because there's less just mass you know whatever the tube moving through the water is they don't, the water doesn't have to go around that <laughs> gut right but at the same point more power in the shoulders and the hips and the torso I think the ratio of like how much efficiency gain you get or how much like better you get by gaining muscle is better than how much efficiency you get by just simply losing fat. So like, like I'm not saying that's the perfect one. The, the perfect one to game would be power lifting versus climbing adaptations to the body. Right. Well, like well, that would be the yeah. one that would put the finger on the scale. That's true. So that's true. So, so, so then it really comes back to this question uh, that I asked earlier, which is, so the, the fear of it and this initial, like what goes on in a, one of your new clients that comes to Brooklyn Boulders, explain like what's in their mind the first week they've never climbed before. Maybe they've climbed when they're younger. What is that uh, persona what's going on in their minds? Well, okay. So there's a bunch of different people. So uh, the business is one of the key basis is people come in and say, I have a note literally on a whiteboard next to me. So I just read it. So 70 to 85% of people come in, they, they want a more creative way to get fit. So they wanted to get fit and they're thinking about joining a gym and they're thinking like, this seems like it would be more fun. So that that's different now. That's a change than people saying, I'm in here training to go climb LCAP, right? That's not even similar. It's more like somebody who's going to show up at like a boot camp or join a traditional gym, especially more like a boot camp. Like I want to get fit, but I want to do it in a way that seems like more dynamic and fun than just hammering it out on the treadmill alone. Right. So, so then you're like, okay, what are some of the barriers? And in, in the talk, I talked about some of the barriers, like people just not feeling they're not strong enough or, or burning out really fast. Like, like if you were trying to run, but then you started just, your goal was like, I'm going to sprint a mile. Well, in a few hundred yards, you're going to throw up or whatever. You're going to be done. It's not going to be fun anymore. So in the equivalent to climbing is looking at something, not knowing what's appropriate for your skill 
and just burning out, like, like, let's just call it your hands to begin with. Hand and forearm are the first to go when you're not adapted. Um, or people not having like social support, like a friend to go with or somebody to kind of experience with, and they're not sure if they can interject into groups that are already climbing. Like they don't know the norms, like the kind of what, what's a acceptable behavior in a climbing gym. Like in a regular gym, it's sure. not really acceptable to go up and talk to people. It's annoying. Like if some, some guys there like lifting, like some guy is talking to some woman who's trying to get a workout. That's not a pro social behavior. Usually there, that's there's an etiquette there that takes a right. while to learn. Violation of etiquette in climbing. It's very much not okay to be hitting on people, but it's very much okay to be talking to people like, Hey, could I get a belay? Like the person who is holding the rope while you climb and people trade off belays, like trading off spot. Like, can I get a spot in a climb in a, in like a bench press scenario? Right. Um, so there's new technology in climbing called an auto belay that'll lower people safely automatically without a belayer, a person who's holding the other end of the rope. That some people react positively to that and some negatively. So if a person is belaying you and our best outcomes usually come with the first time someone's on a rope, having one of our instructors be the one who's on the other end of the rope. For sure. Because one, yeah, because it's like trust, you trust them. The other thing is when you're holding the rope and you know this, like I can hold you really tightly. So you almost feel the positivity of the rope. Yeah. So you have this feeling like there's no sag in the, in the, in the machine. Like, you know, in um, a seatbelt, when you get in an accident, it goes firm. I can make it firm like that. Or in a, or if you're leaning in a seatbelt, normally it'll, it'll give, have give. So you're saying so, belaying is an active, an active exercise by the belayer. It's not just something that's not just holding a rope so you don't fall. It's like they're paying a lot of attention to how much tension that rope needs to have, depending on your ability and how much you're, that climb right. is comfortable with. Right. Totally. And there's more like, as people get more expert, there's different kinds of climbing where there's more, more ability to fall a greater length. But in the very beginning, it's nearly fixed. Like you shouldn't fall. You shouldn't sag more than a few inches if you come off the wall. And so what, when people are learning, the best feeling for them is to have like positivity on the rope where it almost feels like it's pulling them up slight, like the, the ever slightest bit. So they're like, okay, that's there. Like I trust the mechanism similar to how paragliding feels different than skydiving. Cause when you're paragliding, you already feel the pull of the chute or the canopy. And so you're like, okay, that thing is there. I feel it lifting me off the ground. I believe in the, or like I went hang gliding, right? So you feel the force, the uplift force. And so you don't question like, does this work? It doesn't mean you're not going to crash into a cliff, but, but the uplift works. You're like, I believe in the physics of it because I'm feeling it. The other side of climbing is when you fall, you could fall 10 or 20 feet before the rope kicks. And then it might even have slack, it, not slack, but elasticity in it so that it's not, doesn't jar you. So there's types of climbing where you can conceivably fall like 20, 30 feet and you work into that over time. But that, like, if I put a beginner into that experience, it is horrifying because you're free falling until the rope catches. And like, that's no way to introduce people. The auto belays, they automatically lower you and we can set them at different levels of like kind of resistance. What I'm finding is if you set them at high resistance, they lower you very slowly, which, which better climbers don't like, but you don't feel the feeling that like, you know, during the pandemic, I hadn't climbed for a while in a gym. So then I went in and hopped on an auto belay and it wasn't one of my gyms. Uh, and it was pretty loose. And like the first, you know, 
half a second of falling when you fall like five feet before it kicks in. I was like, Oh, that's that feeling of being like, like, like I know the feeling, but you can remember like, that would be horrifying. Like that was, that was unpleasant for me. And I've done this thousands of times. Um, so if we were smart and we're, maybe we are, we're on our way, we would have beginners areas that have auto belays that are very tight and have, feel positive on the way up and then sl slowly lower you, but to the point that you always feel like you're being held. And that will reduce the, the fear of falling right. is a fear that the rope is not going to catch you. Nobody, and I'm not saying nobody, but once, once the rope has caught people and they're just there, nobody's afraid because like, it's like, you know, you're not afraid when you're walking across a bridge, you feel the positivity of the bridge. Yeah. Your, uh, theory. Yeah. It's like, it goes from theoretically working to empirically working right. like this right. thing can hold my weight. Great way to put it. Great way to put it. That's because so it's like, yeah. How do you make it demonstrably working to move it from theory to practice even before they fall. And that I think is the effect of that, like positive, like lift kind of, um, which then good, a strong climber freaking hates because like, imagine if you were getting a spot and they were taking five pounds of weight off of it or 10 pounds of weight, you're like, dude, I'm not, I'm not doing the thing I'm trying to do right now. So, you know, I can tell you my phenotype right away with climbing. And I can tell you, this probably applies to a lot of things. I'm not uh, scared like that. Like I don't get fearful about the falling or the, the, the for some reason doesn't bother me because my brain goes into instant performance and analysis mode. So I'm more frustrated about why am I not better immediately? That's right. So yep. what's the people who are in the making the most gains in that first couple of weeks? And let's just say you probably know the data on this, but let's just say that first couple of weeks is critical. Like if you're not making some gains, you're just frustrated. And that's what happened yep. with surfing. I just feel like this keeps, I keep drowning. The drowning's not yep. fun. So why do I keep doing this to myself? I'm going to sit here and watch everyone else of my friends surf instead. Right. And then, and then that one time, like a dolphin almost smacked me in the face. It was like jumping around La Jolla shores across the board. I'm like, I'm like this, this sport just turned what should have been like one of the most amazing experiences a human could have into something really annoying. And I got really mad at surfing. I was like, this is dumb. Why am I doing this? How do you yeah. get, so, and it was, it was not because I was scared of, of, of the water or the animals. It was just that I wasn't good at it. Well, so the tech I was showing, being able to control progressively every next movement so that it keeps them in flow. Um, so obviously people didn't, didn't catch this. So it's basically running a climbing wall off of a computer, being able to illuminate holds, being able to identify whether a hold is being held. And if so, with how much force, and that allows me to basically say like, um, you know, that, that grid, I'm going to screw it up right now, but for gaming where there's like killers, achievers, explorers, yeah, yeah. social collaboration. So it's like, if I knew what kind of gamer type you are, or like you're an achiever. So it's like, maybe, so you want to say like, I want to get progressively better. I want to know that like, I could do the climb that was the rated, the one, that's not how our rating systems work, but let's say like I could climb a one and then a two and then a three and then a four. So I know I'm getting better. Last week I could only climb a three. Now I can climb a four. So one of the areas, the challenges within that is because they're handmade approximations of what an outdoor climb would be like let's call it a V3 that in a bouldering system, there's V grading. So within a V3, you're very tall and you're powerful and, and your upper body is strong. 
your V3 that favors you could be massively different than like, say my wife's V3 that favors her where she's pretty short. Like um, a lot of women have more mass, like lower mass or, or less, less upper body strength objectively by weight. So, and, and tend to be more technical, better footwork, better attentiveness to, to like quality of movement. If I were to make an extreme stereotype, it's like guys are like <laughs> trying to just, just, just uh, get through with upper body strength. Whereas if you, if you don't have that strength to begin with, you're going to be more attentive to technique. So even within a grade, you could be like, man, I'm getting shut down all day on V3s. Last time I was here, I was able to do a V3. I got worse. But if, if I had my um, attribute system better, and that's why I'm excited about what we're doing, it'd be like, well, Ravi, you're good at powerful, long, reachy V3s, and you've been on techie, uh, like short, uh, more, more kind of graceful, compact V3s. So that's why you're not making a lot of progress. And in, in, in a way to think about it is like, you have a variety of capabilities. Like if you had a character in a video game, like strength, like different techniques you can apply, different um, things that favor your body type. Like maybe you've got more power, but less endurance. Somebody's got more endurance, but less power. And so you could determine like, I want to play to my strengths today, or I want to mitigate a weakness because like, I'm not as good on things that are balancy. So there's stuff that will shut me down. That's very balancy and technical at grades that I can climb if it's overhanging and steep and got good positive holds on it. Like I'll scamper up that thing. No problem. But that same grade of difficulty, if it's very balancy and very reliant on the quality of footwork will just shut me down. So I think in, in more, more than just climbing, I think this, this is interesting to look at in a lot of aspects of life, which is like, if there's an objective measure, like a V grade or a grade, there's so much metadata within that, that if you don't have the metadata, you're not sure if you're progressing or you might even think you're backsliding, but it's because there's a level of nuance it, like in the system that you're not yet aware of. And I, and I like apply that lens to so many facets of life where, where I'm not, it's a lot harder, I think, to know where you stand because you don't even know what information you're missing. So what, what see, I see that in, um, in uh driving race cars a lot i was gonna say that dude i don't know enough about it but it feels like it's gotta be like that it's like that it's like flying too because like the fundamental question when you're trying to put yourself on the spectrum of performers is not where you are that's just as a result right you're you're going okay that's fine so i'm going to put a pin in where i am i'm going to look at my to my left and right so you're looking at the people who are doing it well you're looking at formula one you're saying Something about the guy who is number one, he is seeing something or able to realize aspects of how the car is interacting with its environment and his driving style in ways that I can't. So it's never like a, well, I'm just not born to do that. I can't do it. It's more, I am very open and willing to, to in, you know, welcome any incoming information, but I just don't know what to pay attention to. So can we apply enough sensors to our environment, to our physiology, to what we're paying attention to, to start deconstructing activities like climbing, driving cars fast, basketball players, um, 
where where we can go ah see this i wasn't paying attention to the exit of this corner as much as the number one guy is that's what he's or she is doing yeah let me replicate those things so now i've got this to-do list like okay now i've got things to do i I know how to get there versus before when you don't know that you're just frustrated you're like dude i'm trying everything it's like you're not trying everything you just don't know what to try i dude and i think that to me, and, and this goes like, if you want to zoom it out, like mental models and, and the importance of knowing the mental models for your space or what you're trying to accomplish in, in the absence of it, how much work you put in that's futile. Like I think of all the time I spent in my backyard in middle school and high school, playing lacrosse, playing lacrosse, me alone, doing like stupid stick tricks and taking shots on a goal. But now, I, then I realized that it was painful realization, like observing the field in the development of play is everything. And so I should have been watching more lacrosse on TV or even playing other sports like basketball or soccer and focused way, way, way less on what I thought was like the end behavior, but like shooting the ball in the goal, right? Like I want to get goals. I'll practice shooting the ball in the goal. But then imagine if you had eye tracking tech on much better players, they're spending all their time scanning the field, watching play develop. And, and, and like, you know, projecting what they think is likely to occur similar. It's like, you're saying like how, where someone is looking, going into a corner and like everything is like this riding horses. There's so many examples where even knowing like what mental models to apply, where your attention should be going is so much more important. It's the skill. And you think a lot of times the skill is like the, the very last thing that you see or the most obvious area that you failed. So like in a climbing example, why didn't I climb that? Well, I didn't have enough strength in my left hand. Maybe, or maybe you burned so much energy on the way up to that difficult maneuver that you were never gonna have enough strength left in your left hand. So maybe I shouldn't be going home thinking I gotta train strength in my left hand. I should be thinking about all the energy I wasted by over gripping or moving without grace below that. That level of clarity is insanely hard to get. And like, you, like you're saying, it's everything in life because it's that anal- that metaphor works because it's like we sometimes, I think, probably over-rotate on detection. We're not looking at everything. No, 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 no. The world is information overload by definition. The people who are really successful and, and able to they have, have, seem like they always have clarity, like, uh, like Neville Ravikant, I started reading his book. The guy just has insane clarity on things. You're like, how does he have this clarity? Because he has really, he's really good at signal to noise ratio. He's like, I'm getting a thousand tweets a minute. I'm getting, my inbox is never to zero. I've got four projects I could say yes to, but I know exactly what I want to pay attention to and say no to the rest and let some focus. It gives him some sense of mental peace. And it feels like when you're climbing, it's like what holds are going to get into the top. It's a weird chess game. I've not been able to master that chess game. But it is a weird chess game on the wall. Yeah, and nor have I mastered it. But I, but I think the, the takeaway lessons here are like recognizing that you don't even know all of the lenses that you should be applying or the, or the problem set within taking that into life is like very humbling and can be overwhelming. But I think it's, it's of tremendous value. And we get it like you see in, in driving cars, in climbing, in anything where you're trying to push the bounds, certainly in business, like the dude, uh, the guy who wrote, was it like, you know, that MBA book, the no MBA MBA or something like that. I it's like it. a bestseller. Yeah, I thought it was kind of hokey. And then I heard him on a podcast and, and it was, it was pretty brilliant because he's like, I just went around taking all of the mental models of these very successful people, trying to reverse engineer them and then just 
say, look, I think these like 50 mental models are the mental models that lead to success. It's not about skills acquisition. It's about just applying the right models as needed. And, and so I very much feel like I'm on a hunt always uh, with, with hopefully with great humility for realizing like, I don't know the models that I'm going to need to be good at something. Mm. And then it gets you to like, when you talk to people who are good at things, instead of asking them like how they do it, I think it's way more important to ask them how they think about the thing that they do or how they think about the process of getting better. Because usually like, if you say like, Hey, you're strong. Let's use a basic gym example. You're like, go to somebody. And I think these people are few and far between, but maybe like a guy like Eric Cressy, he trains a lot of the, the MLB baseball players. Right. So you're not saying like, Hey, Eric, you're strong. How, what do you do for exercises? And you could be like, I deadlift, I do this or that. If you say to him like, Hey, how do you think about get the process of getting stronger? He's like, okay. So first I identify, you know, like the strengths, the weaknesses, the imbalances, how much available time people have. Then I start working on, okay, what's the, the, the most limiting, I'm putting words in the guy's mouth, but like the most limiting factor to their success and then their available time should be put principally on focusing on that. And then you're like, oh, okay. So what you do has no relevance to me, but how you think about the problem set is tremendously relevant to me. And then it, that's like a durable lesson or takeaway yeah. because like, you know, you, you outlive any pr like program, right? And it could be exactly the same for studying for like the SAT or whatever you're trying to do is like, okay, what's the framework that people were successful apply here? And then how can I, I comply that to like my specific reality versus like, I think the world is stuck on what are the tactics that I see successful people using and let me apply those tactics. Like it's not about wearing the same t-shirt every day so that you cut down, but it's like maybe one of the frameworks is like uh, choice architecture and reducing the amount of low uh, low importance choices, because like, it might be that I could pick a different t-shirt every day, but where I'm, I'm wasting a lot of my mental energy is like ruminating about some other, uh, obsession that I have. Like my mental and willpower is not going toward picking out outfits. It's being wasted on other existential bullshit. Which, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, that's right. You're right. Cause this is the thing with free time. There's no, you know, it's so funny when people say free time. There is no such thing as free time. All time is expensive. Every single minute is expensive. So it's like, it just depends yeah. on where you want to spend it. Um, yeah, you're right. It seems like there's a common theme that runs through all of those things. And I've seen it with people who maintain their health. And when I, when I say that, I mean, whether it comes to taking their medications, following specific procedures or recommendations from their physician or health coaches, or just take doing those things every day in their life that, that leads to a healthier, happier life, right? So lifestyle changes, like what they eat and how they sleep and their exercise, it's intentionality. They don't leave things to habits. I mean, habits are, autom are, are imply automaticity right? You're trying to take away something, uh, a mental load, like you said, choice architecture. But the thing is, a lot of people who are able to stick with these plans, and that's what we're really talking about when it comes to lifestyle change, or, you know, it's consistency. You're, you're learning a new sport, or you're learning other skills and staying healthy is just as, as much as a skill as, as climbing or surfing, right? It's they apply some kind of intentionality to it. They don't leave success to chance. They think about 
what they're going to eat for today, the week, how they're going to approach it. They think about um, how they're going to sleep, especially if there's meetings, their significant other is working late, if they have to travel. They think through these things beforehand and they have a plan. And that's what I've noticed are the people who, um, those, those are the things that people do who can maintain the weight loss, the healthy schedules. They always seem to have their life a little bit more balanced than the rest of us. That's what they're doing. So it's like, there's no specific formula for how much pasta you should eat every night. It's like, here's right. how you think about your macronutrients on during a busy week, right? And that's a much more valuable skill to have. But the good news with that is it's trainable. That's something learnable. The content is there. The world has enough content, how to stay healthy, how to rock climb. And that's the interesting thing. I can watch enough YouTube videos on how to rock climb. Why can't I just translate that alone to being good in when I walk into your gym or can I, does that work? Yeah. I mean, so I think there's, there's a learned behavior and then practice behavior like that. Some things just take time. I mean, one of the big, I was, I forget who I was talking about this the other day, but like, so, Oh, Jenna, my wife. All right. So I was in Pennsylvania. I wanted to start boxing in college. Great decision. Let's get punched in the head constantly while trying to learn things. So uh, the first day or two, I was sparring, right? So then I come up to Boston during the summer, go to Boston Sport Boxing Club, pretty legit club. Uh, they put out, you know, pretty, pretty good fighters. So I'm like, yeah, I've had, you know, these hundreds of sparring rounds and, you know, I, I want to train up for a fight and blah, blah, blah. And they took one look at me and they were like, we're not letting you spar. Like you barely know how to defend yourself. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I've been in the ring, like hundreds of rounds. And so then, then it was like, no, because it's going to take you at least six months to learn to, to put these movements so deep into your head or into your body that you don't have to think about them. And your reaction under pressure is going to be the reaction that protects you as opposed to, and I remember this happening when I got most pressured would be when I would do stupid things and then get really rocked. So I think there's the objective knowledge and then there's the time to sort of do it enough that it just comes part of you. And like a very specific example to climbing is when people start out, they over grip everything. It takes a little while to realize like, actually you, a lot of times you need very little strength to hold on to a hold so long as you're balanced and you're, and you're sort of using your body like a pendulum, putting the, the, the weight directly down onto your feet. So you might only have one foot, but if you can get enough weight over that foot, your hands are just almost like suggestions holding you to the wall. Whereas in the beginning, you'd be gripping the hell out of them. And so some of that, I think, is just learned over time in your body, learned like from titrating things, it just it like sub sub processes you're not even aware of. Some of it, I definitely think you can learn from YouTube. Um, but related to what I see you doing, coaching clients and, and with a motive, like I think a lot of it is it learning the mental models of even things like what is climbing and what is health like is climbing getting to the top or is climbing moving in a way that you comply your body to have your weight and center of mass over your feet at all times like that's a really different definition of climbing and it would lead to different behaviors and similar to what you're saying like it's not where i always feel for people and I, I'm not going to call out names, but you, you and I know some of these people like, oh, I ate really well today so I can have a cookie for yeah. dessert. And it's like, bro, your mental model is just fucked 
because, and I don't have any problem with people just saying, I want to have dessert. I don't care what the effects are. I'm going to enjoy it because in their mental model might be sometimes you just got to enjoy the thing you want to enjoy. But I think another way to think about the mental model is like, I want to be holistically, I want to feel good when I wake up in the morning. Like I don't always, but that is now what I understand to be my goal. And so if I want to feel good when I wake up in the morning, as much as possible every day, that a lot of things are going to have to change to enable that. So it's like stimulants, downers. It's like alcohol is not gonna make you feel good the next day. Too much coffee is not going to make you feel good the next day. There are so many of these things that impact that, like how you prepare for sleep, blue light, you can go forever. But it's like, is it a list of tactics or it is, is it a mental model related to a specific goal? And so if the specific goal is like, I want to be able to wake up at 530 in the morning and if the surf is good, go surf or do whatever I want because I don't feel like shit from some series of behaviors that I undertook in the, the preceding days, then I can work back that whole model. Is okay, well, how am I going to want to feel? Refreshed recovered, strong, uh, supple in the sense of like from, you know, joints don't want your joints to be stiff. It's like, okay, well then I got to eat in a way that's going to be low inflammation. Cause otherwise I'm going to wake up stiff. I got to go to bed at a reasonable time. And then that to me feels different than saying like tactics, like how much pasta should I eat? Because, because if you, if you look at the end goal, you're like, oh, okay. So like, I'm going to have something that's pretty pro-inflammatory. So I should eat that earlier in the day because at least I'll give my time, my body some time to digest this. And then maybe I can, I can get something anti-inflammatory, like maybe a green, green drink, very low in sugar later to try to bring down that inflammation some, or take like a, a cold shower. I'm not saying like people need to be insane. Everybody's got a different path, but I think it's like, the problem is most of the industries of wellness are built around selling you tactics and not mental models. And where I, where I do see our business, Brooklyn Boulders, but a lot of other gyms finally starting to get it is like, Hey guys. And I see this on LinkedIn, you know, when you're in industries, people post kind of in that niche is like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't just be promoting aesthetics for the gym because most of the time that's not attainable. Maybe we should be promoting how much better people will feel if they work out. And this is all coming on the backs of COVID because like people see the depression levels increasing as people decrease physicality. And it's like, yeah, that mental model, how can, what are the things I need to do to feel better? Not even about myself, self-esteem, but just internally feel better. Why is there a disconnect from the business standpoint of that? Like, why is this such a realization? This almost seems like a, like a pseudo insight. I think why, because businesses exist to make money and it's better to play on people's insecurities and fears to get them to do things. It's a slow, slow burn to say, like you will feel better if you make reasonable choices consistently for, for a long period of time. No one's building a business on that. They're bu- building a business on getting shredded abs fast or the fear of like, you know, not keeping up with your neighbor or in your career, the fear of like being overtaken by someone else. Yeah. Like I just think fundamentally there's so many things I've come to, to believe are the path are not sexy and they don't pay off fast. So it's like meditation, saying to somebody like consistently meditate and bless, you know, like headspace and calm and people that have figured out a business model for it. But before that, there was nobody like hawking meditation because there was no money to be made. And and I at least respect that they see themselves as a gateway to meditation. And then the recognition that once you're kind of in or Sam Harris, you're not going to need this stuff anymore. 
And as long as everybody's okay with that, or they, they, they have to keep pushing the value, additional value, fine. But I think so many of the things that are, are the most impactful for health don't pay off immediately. They take a level of restraint to get into, and they're not, there's not a direct ROI. So there's nobody running pay-per-click pay ads about why you should go to bed on time. I think it's just, it's just marketed wrong. I think there is like a really, really short-term ROI in a lot of this stuff. It's just, we, it's for some reason, um, we haven't prioritized it because it's hard to put numbers around. So for some reason in healthcare and the formal healthcare system with full of doctors, pharmaceutical companies, and insurance companies, like that whole healthcare industrial complex, we talk about outcomes a lot. And for some reason we put blood pressure numbers and weight numbers on a scale and your hemoglobin A1C diabetic profile and your lipids over how do you feel over this last few weeks where you have some increased agency and self-efficacy and you feel like you're in somewhat control of your health destiny? Because that yeah. is just as important. What's the number on that? Well, I don't know who cares. I mean, like one to 10, you know, record that subjectively over time, track it objectively. It's pretty simple to me. So I'm always super confused when healthcare companies are like, how do we, what outcomes are we, should, should we measure? I'm like, it's really simple what outcomes you should measure. Go to your brochure read the sentences that say what you do, just measure that, right? It's like Brooklyn Boulders, like it should be doing, like that's what you're really selling that should be on your brochure, right? It's like, how do I measure that? Cool. And it, it soon will be. To your point though, and where I think we get in a lot of trouble is we don't necessarily measure the most important thing. We measure the thing that we know how to measure. And so in healthcare, it started with objective measures, which like remember before objective measures, like, like objective measures moved us forward a lot, but they're not the be all end all. And so because it's harder to measure things like how you feel, and, and I do think healthcare, I know it's getting better, but like with the love of objective measures, which we need and payers pay on objective measures, which I think is another big part of it, is like people devalue subjective measures because it's like, oh, you know, it's just like someone's opinion. But when it's someone's opinion about how they feel. It's the most important pay, thing. Yeah. yeah, because what else do we run off of? Nothing. So that was funny to me. Yeah. And, and I think like similarly, like the, you know, things I've participated in, but like running health programs where people try to get 5,000 steps or 10,000 steps is like, if you're going to get 10,000 steps at the expense of going out to dinner with your family, because you're trying to like hit some goal, you're screwing up, like not screwing up. Like I blame you, but like, I led you astray by looking at like, is it more important to get 10,000 steps or to generally be active? and have strong social support with your nuclear family and beyond that in your community. And well, so I'm like, like, I just think there's so many of these things you game to the measure. And the number one is obviously wealth, accumulated wealth, right? Just to go on an aside, if we could quantify the net pro-social impact that people have in their community and put that out like Twitter followers or like bank account balance, like if I was a thousand points for net benefit to society and people, people gave a shit about that. And you were 1200 points. And I'm like, I'm like trying to close the gap and think about how I could create 200 points of value for society. Like I would way rather people game to the health and happiness of you and your family and the value that you provide to your community. And if we could figure out a way to quantify those scores and elevate them, like, you know, they say, Oh, billionaires should pay more taxes you know, I'm going to stay out of that for a second, but man, wouldn't it be interesting if you ranked people, their contribution to society in a way that was fair. Do you and think then you got clouds doing like, that? What? Do you think BitCloud's doing that? 
I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I'm suspect. Well, I'm suspect of, of all of this Everyone's shit. Everyone's got their own coin. You can contribute or buy. You can buy other people's coin, and they're ranked on the list. See, I'm. My problem is, like, I was I was trying to give a review to one of my employees, and he was like, "Hey, can we reschedule? Because I cook, I cook for you know disadvantaged people on Friday at 4 p.m." All right, so this is a guy who's worked for me for a period of time. He's never said a word about it. Nobody. I mean, maybe in his world, but like nobody, at least in my company knows about it. I don't think whatever his, and I don't know enough about BitCloud, so I'm not going to like shit on that. But like, I don't think his BitCloud is reflecting the fact that every week this dude spends two hours of his time cooking for people, asks nothing in return and doesn't brag about it or use it for signaling. So it's like, well, where is that showing up in, in clout or in your Instagram followers or in Twitter and like how, if people, if you could just gain the machine to focus more on that kind of thing, whatever the thing is, like, like, man, I would love to live in that world. And I think it would be part of the solution to the issue of people saying like billionaires need to pay more taxes, pay their way, because there are some people and like, you know, I, I personally don't think Bill Gates is trying to give everyone a microchip in the vaccine, yeah. but there are people who've made a lot of money and they're maybe the way they're investing it back in the community isn't perfect, but they're putting enormous time and energy into doing that. And so then it's like, okay, people know Bill Gates. He's got his own PR, I'm sure. And he's already famous, but like, what, what is that mechanism whereby you could say maybe it's relative to means or maybe it's total impact, but like, Hey, this is how we're stacking up in terms of pro social behaviors in our community. And it, I, I strongly believe if we would game to that and game to your internal perception of health and happiness informed by certainly objective measures, like it would be, I think we're nearly ready to do that. We have the technology and it would be transformative to society. It's definitely worth a try and you're going to get it. We're going to get it wrong, right? Maybe the first couple of times we'll get it wrong. As long as you are aware of the limitations of the beginning, that the dimensions of the, hum of the human existence can't all be captured by a set of numbers. So obviously, yeah. like you were talking about, big cloud or these new technologies may not capture these altruistic things that people are doing and they're getting a lot out of it and other people are getting, out of, getting out, uh, things out of it too. Um, like the social determinants of happiness or like contentment, right? The contentment's yeah. a better word than, than happiness because who wants to change that? Yeah. yeah. I, I would go with meaning. If I could game to one thing in my life, it would be meaning because I, maybe that's just from somebody who hasn't figured out how to feel content or contentment seems to come as a passing feeling, but meaning the times when I think I'm doing things that are meaningful, even if I'm burned, I feel good. And, and like, I think that one that has like a durability to it and it can be like an underlying thread in your life. Uh, I don't know how to like visualize it. Well, or... promotes anti-fragility because when you go through the troughs in life and things are going to get bad, it's like the meaning is what gets you through there along yeah. with social support and other things. It's the life ring that gets thrown to you internally that you have to, you have to prepare and make sure that things, you know, you have to make sure that, they, that you have to test the fire alarm. You have to test every once in a while. Maybe part like part of the thing with like, rock climbing or surfing or getting over those hurdles and getting over those fears of doing it, the anxiety, the frustration, maybe that's really just practice. That's practice for when things get really bad in the real world, when you're not in a rock climbing gym and maybe you don't have the rope to belay, you can count on yourself to get through it. Yeah. You're, they're therapy. I view them as therapy. 
Also, I think they're like context setting. So I'm not in favor of people risking their life because your number will come up eventually. But I, I distinctly remember being in meetings and people freaking out about some bug or some bullshit or lack of funding and thinking, I almost drowned yesterday. Like no one's dying here. Not the same if you work in a hospital, there are people dying, but in a lot of these startup kind of context. And, and I think like the way I would categorize climbing, not necessarily in its effect on population health, but on the individual is like, it is a time for you to work on you and, and sort of maybe not exercise the demons, but like come back into wider society in a place that's more centered where you have more bandwidth to deal with people in a positive way. And we all, I can't say it's climbing for everybody, but we all need that thing where when you go do it for a couple hours, you come back and the energy you have for your family and for your community and your coworkers is like refreshed. And so for me, those are some of those things, but my hope is just everybody finds their thing. Like it could be playing guitar, going for a run or, or art painting but it's like the thing that refreshes you so that when you show back up in life, dealing with other people, you're as good of the, the nearly the best version of yourself you can be on any given day. I, I have so much empathy for people that don't feel like they have that or that are, are separated from it for some reason, like for COVID. Um, but yeah, that's what I, I want for the world, for sure. So why do you keep choosing... What does it say about you that you choose things where there's a real existential threat? I mean, you're not doing things like just mountain, well, even mountain biking, you're like crazy mountain biker. I need, I need therapy and uh, it's from a lack of self-esteem or ADD or something. Um, I think as I become more, the more that I meditate, the less I feel I need to push the envelope. And I think what it is is when there's noise in your head whether it's a, a voice that of lacking in faith in yourself or just, just a scramble of constant thinking and ideas, there's an extreme clarity that comes when you're right on the line. It's the deepest flow when you're thinking. And also a last one I'll say is like something I got addicted to early. If you think you're really, really fucked, like big sets coming in, you're tired. You've been held under for a while. You just pop your head up. I get a voice that comes in. It's a third party voice. Like we've got this, we can do this. And once you hear that voice and I felt it climbing, I've heard it climbing too, man, that's the best version of yourself. It's endlessly loving. It loves you and it believes in you. And so I think there's people who just get addicted to, to experiencing that voice. And I've probably heard it like five times. I think I'd be okay not hearing it again because what you got to put on the line to access it is not good for people that have, you know, like a kid and a wife and just, you know, you want to stick around. Everything um, comes into focus pretty quickly. Right. But yeah. So I think the noisier it is in people's head, like frenetic ideas and always thinking about interpersonal relationships, the more people want to do things that snap you into clarity in that, in that, the mind where it's like you're hyper-focused, but also aware of your surroundings. And I think the more you meditate or whatever, maybe there's CBT, maybe there's other exercises the lower the need for that. And the more that like, you know, like, like how can I now, I was never into death metal, but it's like become, be, become accepting of listening to classical music as opposed to death metal, because you can enjoy the nuance and you don't have to get slammed in the face with the intensity of it. I think it's a statement about where your head is at going into the activity. And I don't think everybody who does extreme sports is crazy or needs therapy or anything. I was kind of joking, but like, 
I do think there's this point at which the more that we meditate and the more that we can quiet our minds and be present, the less we require that level of stimulation to get to the same end. Yeah. It's the hyper-focus. And so when I'm skydiving, it's that, you know, last 40 seconds. Right. And it's like, you know, the, the, all the, all your to-do lists get funneled down into one checkbox item, right? Yeah. Don't die. Yeah. It's, you ask any pilot, you know, what they're thinking about or what their mom's name is in the last 30 seconds before landing a plane on the runway. And they wouldn't be able to tell you because they're so incredibly hyper-focused. That is a very addictive thing. I think there's something in addition to that though, which is kind of you and probably a little bit me, but not as much as you, which is that death thing. It's the, you have to perform. Like if there is no backup, there is no safety. There's nobody going to come get you. That does put you in this hyper-dimensional awareness that you just can't get in most things. And I think that's some other aspect of hyper-focus that you don't get playing badminton, right? Or maybe you do, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we haven't played badminton well enough. That's possible. I think you can train it. You can train the threshold down to enter it with things like meditation, but it also might just be that the price is so high. Like there's levels of ecstasy that you got to put a lot on the line to experience. And I'm not so sure, like I might be okay going to my grave, not experiencing levels even beyond that. Right. Like, like people report incredible experiences from near death experiences and being in comas, but like, I'm okay. Not experiencing that. In fact, I hope not to. to So it may be that the expanse of human experience is broader than we think. Some of us stumble on some of the fringe areas of it. And, and there's a lot of examples we won't get into on this or where people run afoul of finding the extreme fringes of human experience. But I think part of it is just like, what's the root of the need? Like the mental model, why are you here trying to experience this? And it might just be that there's unbelievable experiences, but you got to put so much up every time you got to bet the house to, to experience them that they're just not worth having. That's probably not a way to live. In battle. I think this shit's probably from battle, from preparing people to go to war, um, which is another experience where I have great respect for the people that are willing to do it. And I'm okay not experiencing it. I would prefer not to. So, Martin, the kind of experiences and the range of emotions and the thing from satisfaction to frustration feels like the climbing gym, weirdly, this epicenter where you can experience all of that, right? right? In, in a relatively, like you said, low impact, safe environment where you're, you're surrounded by people who you can talk to, who are willing to help out um, and in a really cool place. I mean, would you agree that's a, it's, it's, it's maybe an experience that people who don't traditionally see themselves as climbers. And by that, I mean, they watch like documentaries with Alex Honnold. I'm like, that's not me, but they still have a lot to gain from trying out climbing. Absolutely. And and we discuss things like fear, but there's very little of that really in a climbing gym. I think it's more of a place to enjoy the experience of movement, learn something more about yourself, try a new skill, and, and meet people, make friends in a way that's like a very safe environment to talk to other people that could be strangers. I think, frankly, that's the most unique part about the culture is there just are not a lot of places where you could go and talk to people if you feel like it or not. And everybody's okay with that. And it's very low. It's like a low level of commitment to initiate a conversation because you can say, oh, that's a cool climb. How'd you do that? Or, you know, what are you working on today? And you can take it as far as you want. I've made lifelong friends, or it can be just a passing nod at people who you see frequently. And we don't have a lot of spaces in our culture like that. My guess is that's kind of like what church is like for a lot of people. A lot of people, and I don't use this as a marketing statement, or I've said this is like the church for our generation. 
which is not a knock on religion. It's more of saying like, it's a community space where people can develop all sorts of relationships at varying intensities um, and where people come together. And I think in cities, that's really, it's one of some, it's, there are others, but it's one of a few places where you can do that. So I'm, I'm very pro, pro climbing, but I'm, I'm also just pro people getting together and enjoying the things that they like to do. I admire in this conversation, what you've been able to do that I've not seen before done well is when basically explain the, the model behind the real meaning behind the statement, most of climbing is mental. And that just seems like a platitude that we hear all the time. But I think what you've talked about so far really puts some deep meaning and explanation behind what that means. You're building models on how to move and orient your environment, learn, deal with frustration and fear, and be able to involve yourself in graded tasks in environments that are very forgiving and sociable, in, like you said, in places like cities where they weren't typically available, but collectively is reaching some part of our DNA, probably, that's we were used to before our current cultural environment, right? So like when we were living in the woods and in small tribes, maybe this is like something that is obvious to us and climbing is a natural way to do that. We're just reactivating those genes. I would agree. That's a great summary. But look, where can people find you? Well, I guess I should use Twitter again. So Martin Adler or Adman Twitter. Um, I'm keeping my digital presence pretty minimal these days and it's working great for me. But I think, yeah, Twitter, my email, martin at brooklynboulders.com. And I'm happy to be back on the podcast. I love talking with you. And I love that you're in the business of ideas that benefit people. 